Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. I am Hi, Boomer. I'm Al- oh. ah. Hi, I'm Allie. <laughs> and I am Boomer. And we are recording in three separate cities in America. We are gathering on the internet to talk about movies once again. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamplex. How's everybody been doing? I've been doing all right. Uh, sounds like Allie has been doing some housework. I rescued some chairs from the trash turned out to be from the 50s and i uh, took the seats off and i put them in plastic bags so that in case there were bed bugs they would die put those bags out in the sun and then i used my clamp to spread the joints apart because someone had previously attempted to repair it um just by it looked like glopping on glue and hoping for the best um, then I put some glue on those joints, and then I clamped them back together with ratchet straps, and I recovered the seats, and then I reattached those seats. I've been loosely following that saga, and it's wow. been very thrilling. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. I think that they turned out very well. Uh, the saga has come to uh, a conclusion, but all stories this, are, are part of a larger story. Was this all on the Instagram? On the gram? Yeah, it was on my Twitter, and then um, uh, once it was all done, I put it all on Instagram at once as well. Neither you nor I tweet very often, but you must be high on my like Twitter algorithm because just you know, once a day when I open the app, your chair updates were like first thing. So I was getting like uh, upfront <laughs> updates on like the chair oh, nice. saga. They look great. Well, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, I am curious what was going on over at uh, Allie's house that the TV was disconnected. Yeah, I had no TV for five days ish. So we are redoing the floors in our house. Um, oh, me is, too. Oh, Oof. nice. See, we're this old housing the uh, Swamplex <laughs> podcast right now. Uh, yeah. So when we first moved into our house, the owner had sanded down the floors and had painted them this really dark, 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 like almost black teal. And it shows like every bit of dust and it makes our house like have an impossible void below us all the time and there's just mm. gouges and scratches and finally we decided that we were done living in the void a little bit so we got new floors and right now two and a half rooms are done i am staring at currently where there is a stopping point because we have to move furniture all the way back <laughs> um to get to the rest of the floor it's been a process, and yeah, I had no TV plugged in until last night. And then briefly there, I had no internet. And so last night, Stoker's the first thing I watched on my newly put-in TV. <laughs> nice. But other than that, I have been watching Columbo. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, each episode is kind of just basically a made-for-TV movie, but they're all very great. I love Columbo. He's so adorable. I know, Peter Falk. And then I saw City of Lost Children in my neighbor's backyard, and I liked it. Was that a first-time watch? It was a first-time watch. Interesting. The whole look and feel of it was very Dark City to me, which was... I like Dark City, so that's not, like, an insult, but, you know, it was very, you know, that whole encapsulated, like, dark little world. That would have been, like, years before Dark City, too, right? Was it? I thought it was after. 
It might have no, been. No, I'm before. pretty sure it was like the nineties. Hmm. Huh. Like Dark City was the same time as the Matrix, right? Yes, the Dark Matrix City was, was the same time as the Matrix, but I thought the City of Lost Children was later, but I don't yeah, know the exact year it, it came too. out. But... I, yeah, I don't either. Anyway, I liked it. Very imaginative, very like go for broke, weird, while also still having a very straightforward narrative. I'm a huge sucker for Janae in general. Like, yeah. I eat his bullshit up right up every time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame you. I mean, it's always, it's always good, you know. Uh, and then the next night we my neighbors did like a total switcheroo and we watched Legally Blonde, um, which was definitely not my first watch. And that movie is a time capsule. I swear. Just like, wow, there's so many things from this era that have just been permanently preserved by this film. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's been the extent of my watching. Oh yeah, and I started watching the show Elementary with Lucy Liu. Because she's a very calming presence, as I found out. And something I can put on my laptop and not worry that I'm, like, ruining the experience or anything. Also, I just, I don't like watching things on my laptop in general. It's it's not my favorite. (laughs) It's not what it's for. Like, I feel like no matter what, I always end up, like, Googling something in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, That's what the laptop is for. Uh, Yeah. I, I never have the focus. I need to, like, sit down for 90 minutes without touching the keyboard. And, I mean, it's supposed to be my school laptop, okay? I'm supposed to be doing homework, (laughs) not watching Lucy Liu be an extremely calming presence in a crime show. Yeah, Brandon, before you came on earlier off mic, uh, Allie and I were talking about Lucy Liu, and I also uh, mentioned that Johnny Lee Miller, of course, was in, or I was thinking that Johnny Lee Miller was also in Hackers, which I'm sure you're going to have some discussions about in a little bit Hackers here. Hackers has been on the top of my mind for days and days now. <laughs> I, I assume, I nice. assume. Was that a first time watch, Brandon? Oh, yeah, but it felt like the millionth time. Like yeah. I was having like yeah. active nostalgia for something that was entirely new to me while watching it. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's so exciting. Speaking of which, I actually then mentioned that I recently watched Lucy Liu's debut in The X-Files um, in the episode that she was in, which leads me to say I have now seen The X-Files movie originally not known as fight the future but now known as fight the future and everybody's kind of acting like it was always that way even though (laughs) i saw a vhs copy in the record store just two weeks ago that clearly did not have fight the future anywhere on its cover so don't let them sigh off that away that's like an x-file unto itself trust no one (laughs) trust no one especially not wikipedia or the Blu-ray release. I guess because there was the second X-Files movie, but like even if you watch the old trailers, there's no... Like, Fight the Future does appear, but it's it's clearly a tagline, not part of the title, but uh, I digress. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Great to see Walter Matthau. Every every time David Duchovny, you know, wants to meet up with uh, Walter Matthau, I thought that, that was a delight. Unfortunately, I was a little bit inebriated during the viewing because we've been having some uh, HOA problems here at the property. Uh, and we, I met up with some people to discuss it. We had a couple of drinks and then I was like, oh no, this is the night I'm supposed to watch the X-Files. But we did make a big production of it. We watched the Springfield Files episode of The Simpsons first and then we ordered lots of pizza <laughs> and we got movie candy and then we you know, watched it on the big screen, the biggest screen that we could 
uh, see it upon, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Was that the one with the bees? There are bees, yes. Okay. There's episodes with bees. Yes. The bees are part of the uh, enigma wrapped in the conspiracy shrouded (laughs) in a government file. Yeah. Rewatching it, I was like, man, from my childhood, I just remember killer bees being like a big thing on the news. And I guess they just like got absorbed straight up in the writer's room. Everybody was like, killer bees. That's what we're going to write about. They tried to bring that panic back early pandemic. And yeah. Not having it. <laughs> we completely ignored that issue after like a couple days. Climate change killed all of the killer bees. <laughs> That's my wow. new X-File. That's so sad. But I'm going to have to rewatch it. And I did enjoy seeing it translated to the, you know, the big screen. I whipped it up every time something I knew appeared on screen. So, you know. It takes a while before uh, Mulder and Scully show up because, you know, there's the sort of prologue in the distant past. And then there's like um, Lucas Black falling in a hole and then the ooze. And then there's, you know, Terry O'Quinn, who's standing around trying to uh, lead a bomb squad. And then suddenly, finally, Mulder and Scully show up on screen and you're just like, whoop, 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 finally. There's my heroes. It's like, yeah, it's Skinner. Yeah, it's the lone gunman. It was a good time. But I did take that opportunity to say, all right, it's time to take a little X-Files break. You know, pretend that it's the summer the movie came out. You got to wait until the fall or at least a little while longer to find out what happens next. So I've been trying to do more 2021 catch up, which I assume you figured out, Brandon, by the number of reviews that I've been sending you. Oh, yeah, it is Boomer Takeover Week. I'm doing only Boomer reviews this week because you got a, a lot coming in. It's very exciting for me. I wish that I had enjoyed more of them. But the thing is, I did see and enjoy other things that just have already been reviewed. So now, previously, we talked about a glitch in the Matrix. And then I went straight from there to a perfect enemy because I cont- I'm continuing to go in alphabetical order. And those are at the top because it's A and then space. I won't go into too much detail about the ones that we've got copy on because I don't want to spend the whole podcast doing that. But starting with the one that I enjoyed the least, that would be Unholy with Jeffrey Dean Morgan, William Sadler, and Carrie Elwes, which I thought was going to be a haunted doll movie. And then once I started watching it, I was like, oh, this was the movie that they were promoting around Easter, you know, uh, <laughs> to, to, it came out on Good Friday or, or Palm Sunday or something like that was its whole deal. I thought it was going to be a haunted doll movie. It's a pretty run of the mill possession story. It has a pretty interesting climax. in so far as it becomes less about driving out the demon and more about like, oh, how do we like take away its power. And I, I really would have loved it if the movie had ended then. But then of course there, you know, the demon has to appear and then they have to big, do a big, dumb, goofy CGI fight. And I was like, Oh, you know, this could have been a much more interesting movie if it had just ended with the demon being defeated by doubt. But obviously they don't make movies like that anymore, or maybe never did. A perfect enemy was a really intriguing concept, even though, it's a movie that we've seen the central conceit of it a lot, but I don't want to say what that conceit is because it just completely gives it away. 
it's not a Jacob's Ladder scenario, but you know, the moment you compare a movie to Jacob's Ladder, like uh, everybody who's listening to you talk about it knows exactly what to expect. It kind of spoils the whole thing. I've never seen Jacob's Ladder. We need to do that eventually. Yeah, I was going to say oh. me either. So It's a classic that's just missing from my repertoire. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I watched the remake. It wasn't very good, but I w- I'm down to rewatch the original very soon. It's It's great. It is a classic. But I mean, I'm going to ask, do y'all know what the twist is in nope, Jacob's nope. Ladder? Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. But as an analogy, it, it was, at least at one point, a fairly widely known twist. Let's say, um, let's make the Sixth Sense comparison instead. As soon as you're like, oh, it, it reminds me of the Sixth Sense, then you know what the plot of the movie is. So there are films that have central conceits that are very similar to that of A Perfect Enemy, but I can't even say what they are because it's immediately. It's like uh, when we were talking about uh, the popular twist of there's someone living in the walls. Yes. How that's like a whole canon of films that you can't talk about together because they spoil each other by being grouped. Yes. Yes. Um, The only one that you can say is Bad Ronald because it's been 50 years and (laughs) Either you know about Bad Ronald or it really won't, uh, or you really won't care. But A Perfect Enemy, it has a lot of really interesting visuals. One of the performances is really great, and the other performance is really, really not. And it's the lead, and I, I refer to it as a, as a Wysonian sort of approach to acting, which I don't want to be too hard on this guy. I've seen him in interviews, and I've watched clips of other things that he's in, so he's clearly making like a character choice like it's like his actor's secret is that he's actually tommy wiseau (laughs) the delivery of it is so stilted and bad and i can see sort of the artistic choice to play stilted and dry and bad against a character that's much more effervescent and is kind of playing like a you know manic pixie nightmare woman kind of thing um, and to want to do sort of something that's a little drier opposite that, but it was not a choice that ultimately benefited the story. I think that it um, kind of caused the, the movie to drop a few points in, in my esteem. I also watched Stowaway, which is a not-too-distant future sci-fi story that is a uh, take on the Cold Equations classic science fiction pulp story. Tony Collette is great in it. Anna Kendrick is great in it. But ultimately, it just kind of... It, apparently, it is a Netflix movie. Uh, that's not where I... I didn't realize that when I watched it. And it feels like kind of what you think when you think about like a Netflix original from maybe five or six years ago. Like, clearly done creatively, but kind of on the cheap. And no one is giving like I said in my review, a career best performance, even though they're, they're doing well with the material and the material is good. It's, it's just one of those things that doesn't add up to be more than the sum of its parts. It's just, it is what it is. I was so stoked to watch that when I heard there was a Tony Collette in space movie, like those two things combined sound like unmissable, <laughs> but I have not heard anyone say anything like super enthusiastic about it. Just like it was pretty good, yeah. which, uh, you know, didn't really inspire much excitement. It would play really well, like TNT, if they did like a Thanksgiving Day afternoon nap, Apollo 13 comes on at 2 p.m., and Stowaway comes on at 5. (laughs) 
that's what we're talking about here. And again, it's not the fault of anyone involved. It's not the director's fault. He's good. It's not the actor's fault. They're all great. There's just not much more to it than, than what you see. It just is what it is. And then from there, the last thing that I saw that I wrote about that I just want to talk about very briefly is The Toll, which, Brandon, you said that you had heard positive things about this one. Yeah, but only from a couple people. You know, I, I listen to a lot of movie podcasts, a lot of different ones looking for new titles. And this one has only come up maybe twice across all of them. And they were both like some of the more esoteric, like horror only podcasts. So like, mm. I, I don't think many people have seen this. And it was the one from this batch of rev- reviews that I'm like most excited to watch myself. And um, it was the one I was going to link in the show notes for this episode too, just because uh, it looks cool as hell. Looks really creepy. Of the things that I've sent you copy on, it's the thing that I enjoyed the most uh, that I've seen uh, so far this year. I guess I'm not really surprised. It's interesting because Stowaway has this minimalist cast. It's only four people completely. Even when Commander Tony Collette is speaking with ground control, you never even hear the other part of the conversation or see it. There's only four people in total. It's like, um, it's like Sleuth where it's only four people. Whereas the toll is mostly just two characters, but there are others who appear as, you know, for instance, specters at the end. There's, you know, phone calls with people's mothers and apparitions of people from our main character's past. But uh, since I guess it isn't well known, I'll just say it's a, a woman gets picked up by a rideshare driver in the middle of the night. She's on her way to her father's rural home while driving through a sort of very poorly lit, deep, arboreal road, the car dies and they are both tormented with visions of their pasts and their guilts by something called the Toll Man, which could easily sound very silly, but it takes itself seriously enough and it's scary enough in that it has real big, you know, 1408 vibes where it's like, or the ritual, where it's not that the toll man itself is scary, it's what he forces you to see, like this malevolent fey creature. Uh, I really enjoyed the ending. It's very short. It's 80 minutes. It's very tight. But by the end, you have kind of forgotten some things that are foreshadowed early on that come around to be relevant again. It's like, oh, kind of in the same way that, not that these are necessarily in the same league or of the same type, but, you know, hereditary starts out as a sort of bad seed story before turning into like ordinary family for so long that when the Rosemary's baby elements show up again, you're like, Oh, right. Maybe I had, Uh (laughs) that's right. This is a story that's, that's weird. And that one has much more time to play around with that too. 80 minutes is a tight turnaround for that kind of uh, shift. And then I did see three things that are currently my top three of the year that have all had uh, some copy on the site already. Um, in ascending order of what I enjoyed, I saw St. Maud, finally, which I know that both of y'all had seen previously. I was convinced yeah. you would like this, so I'm curious what your take is. Oh, I loved it. Awesome. <laughs> it definitely has all of the things that I like, and specifically, <laughs> did you specifically think I was going to enjoy it because of the setting up the possibility of it being all in her mind or supernatural and then coming down not on the side. Not necessarily like the plot, 
but more of the general immersion in a woman who is losing her grip with reality, and you can read it either way um, about like what's actually happening. But it was very focused on her psychology specifically, right. which I know we've talked about plenty of women on the verge movies before, and I just thought it was interesting as a character study in that way that I thought you might vibe with. Plus yeah, just guilt stuff too, obviously. Yeah, it's all the things that I enjoy, all the things I love most in a movie. It's got that religious guilt stuff, which you know that I love. It has the um, sort of play, the interplay between um, is this all in her mind or is this actually like a supernatural event that's happening to her, which of course, you know, is a thing that we've, we've talked about a lot on here where I'm very much a, a scully, where I kind of want it to be a little bit more I just wish there were more films in which <laughs> were pretty explicitly shown that everything is the result of someone's uh, mental state. But yes, it has all that woman on the verge energy that I really love. I loved her roach god. I loved her <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. sad little <laughs> apartment that she lived in. Oh my gosh. I loved her interaction with her employer. I loved the wallpaper fell in love with the wallpaper in that woman's house. There was not a part of this that I did not love very deeply down to the very set dressing. So yeah, loved it. It's so right now it's, it's looking like it's going to be my number three, although there's still plenty of year left. Who knows what will happen? The green Knight could shoot to the top, but the other, one of the other things that I saw, and this is contentiously a 2021 movie. I, I would consider it one, um, and it's also a woman on the verge movie, which is promising young woman. I mean, that did get a theatrical release like late in the year. It, you know, it's one of those Oscar movies that they hold out to the very last second. But whatever, most people did see it this year, not last year. So whatever. And I kind of have, I, I know, in previous year end lists, I, I've stated my um, feelings about this, which is anything that comes out in the last two calendar weeks of the year should count for the the following year. Yeah, you might as well. I mean, the whole point of those lists is just to generate recommendations. Like, yeah. to cut something off or like some arbitrary deadline is very silly. Like, what's the point? If it's not really feasible or possible for someone to see it before the end of the year, I think that it should, should count for the following year. I thought Promising Young Woman was possibly one of the best movies I've ever seen. Huh. I, I liked it okay. <laughs> Uh, I wish I had a stronger reaction to it, I guess. Like, it, it seems like a movie that wants to be, like, really provocative. And there are a few things that happen narratively that are, like, shocking and, you know, especially test your sympathies for this, like, anti-heroine character. Um, especially with the Alison Brie storyline. It's like, you can't, you know, cheer her on the whole time because she is messy and, you know, does fucked up shit. Right. But, you know... I really didn't feel very strongly watching it. I just thought it was cool that a genre movie that is, you know, provocative with a capital P won a screenwriting award at the Oscars this year, which is a much stuffier institution than usually pays attention to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I concur. Ali, I don't know. Did you see it? I did not see it. It kind of just vaguely knowing what it was about. I was like, I don't think I can watch that. That's fair. And I think that that's a completely... I appreciate your appreciation for your own mental health oh yeah uh-huh the last um and i know we're women on the verge moving and i know that y'all had a whole episode about it but the last movie i watched that like 
Oh man, I I was like I shouldn't have watched that. It was actually Horse Girl. So I'm just oh, like really? okay. I know which uh, topics I just should avoid. And uh, Saint Maud wasn't quite as bad for me, but Horse Girl, like I was like, oh my god, did someone like make a movie about all my life anxieties? I don't know what to do here. That's fair. And that one's like a hard one to predict too. Yeah, just based on the premise that it, it might go there. Yeah, that scene in the graveyard is really raw for a movie with that kind of premise. Yeah, and that was kind of like you know my last year mess up of oh man maybe I should uh, spend more time about these these movies. But yeah, it's like explicitly like okay this is what this movie is about. Big trigger warnings. So I was like okay yeah I'm gonna pass I'm gonna pass on that. <laughs> thanks. It is very no, upfront. Yeah. Yeah. And good for it that it doesn't sort of try to disguise that before you get into it because it, you know, it's very rough. There are a lot of scenes in it that are very hard to get through. And, uh, you know, Brandon, you said, you know, provocative, which I agree. It, it has the women on the verge energy of like Queen of Earth to me, which I know I talk about um, far too often, but I, I love Queen of Earth. And this had, I don't know, there was something about the energy that was like that. Sort of the candy color, Heather's descent into madness, but also like kind of, uh, you're never quite sure where you stand on anything. And, and it really plays with your uh, empathy where you never, <laughs> you never side with anyone else against her ever, but it makes it very difficult to side with her at times as well. But I loved. I loved the the dark comedy of it, despite its subject matter, which I think was was a great way to play it, because there are large portions of the movie that are very funny. And then after, you know, one of those final horrifying scenes, there are jokes in it after something truly horrible happens where you're like, I don't I don't even know how to feel anymore. And, you know, I've often said that for me one of the qualities of a great movie is not just how well it's constructed or how interesting its ideas are. It's how does it make me feel? Does it make me feel anything? Does it generate an emotional connection with me? Does it confuse me? Does it confound me? Does it challenge me? And this movie definitely did. And I I did go back and read your article that you wrote about it, Brandon, after I watched it. And, uh, you know, I did see that you were not as in love with it as I was, but I did see that you had recognized like the oddity of something like that achieving, you know, that recognition. Yeah. It's a good thing for movies like that. Like I do watch the Oscars specifically for instances like that. Like I love the fact that something like that can win an award because it means that more movies will be able to get better funding like that. So like, I don't know. I was thinking a lot about like, felt when i watched it and like teeth Mm. and just other oddball rape revenge movies that i like better than promising young woman but because that movie won that means that more movies like that can get made and get distributed properly so i don't know i I wish i had a stronger reaction to it but i still felt good that it won an award when i watched it yeah that's kind of a general take i would love to read a more in-depth review from you because uh you know i didn't really feel like i had much to say about it so that's kind of why I talked more about it's like what its success means more than like the movie itself. Yeah. Uh, maybe you'll see copy on it uh, sooner than later. Then I, I didn't want to repeat anything that you had already said, but yeah, maybe you'll, maybe we'll see that coming out. 
I also know that you were less than impressed with what is currently sitting at my number one spot, which I know I just talked about the mood whiplash within Promising Young Woman, but the mood whiplash as we move from Promising Young Woman to talk about Psycho Gore Man is also something uh, worth noting. Allie, are you familiar with this one? Have you heard of this one? I have heard of it. It's been sitting around on Shudder, and I'm like, this could go either way. So it's good to have both a agree and disagree sort of thing going on. I will here. say I, I stand alone on this because James and Hannah both loved it as well. I'm the only one who has had a, a nonplussed reaction with it. So I, I assume that everyone will enjoy it. And honestly, I should. It seems like you... Right? It really does. I just did not have fun with it. I enjoyed it so much. I laughed so much. Did you watch it with a friend or by yourself? That's, I that's did watch it with a friend, which that might, might be part of it. Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, sometimes comedy is very difficult to watch alone because there is a social element to laughter that if you're watching a comedy alone, you might not get. Your, your synapses don't fire the same way, even if you get it. Yeah. Um, but yes, I. it seems like you... The, you know, sort of bratty child, the musical interlude where they're forming the band, the warehouse scene where Psycho Gorman traps that man in perpetual pain like a Cenobite, the the reprise of the terrible song that this child has written. I understand that as like a commentary on the meta text of its own genre that's where it lost me yeah there there are parts of that that work for me and parts of it that don't work but it mostly works so for instance when she reprises her song and it's like you know i'm the heckin best and it's been like you know it was funny earlier on where she and her brother had this band with their friend and you know she was trying to even though she's kind of a little terror she also is still just a little girl so whenever she's writing her songs even though she at this point has like the leash of like a murderous (laughs) interdimensional despot that she still isn't you know oh the worst word you can say is frig you know like that that there's a charm to that and then when it is reprised at the end and she sings it like slowly to me i find that very funny like as as a commentary on the sort of Amblin format, where this movie feels like a dream that you had after watching too many of those, after you've watched E.T., but also Mac and Me, and they all form into some... But you, you fell asleep watching Mac and Me, and then also at some point in the night, you woke up for a minute and, like, Pumpkinhead was on, <laughs> and then you fell back to sleep, or Rawhead Rex. I saw it mostly as um, R-rated Power Rangers, like just the Rita Repulsa segments without the actual Rangers in it. Like the monsters especially felt very Power Rangers to me. They're so delightful. I loved them so much. In your review of it, you mentioned Turbo Kid, and that was the thing it most reminded me of. Like there's, it has that same Turbo Kid energy where it's like uh, an R-rated version of a PG-rated ripoff of an R-rated film where like a, 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 a movie comes out for adults and then Roger Corman makes like a child's version of it. Yeah. And then someone grows up to create their own homage to that, which is R-rated. It's like, there's something cyclical about it that just like really hit my funny bone, but I understand that it's not going to do that for everyone. 
I think the thing that really lost me was the dad character. Like, his jokes about his nag wife just uh, really, yeah. really turned me off. And, yeah, a lot of the, like, shots of the uh, monsters who all look amazing. Like, all the practical gore is fantastic in the film. But then the shot will, like, linger for a second past the joke to sort of, like, point mm. out how goofy it is. And, like, how what you're looking at is this, like, handmade product. So it's, like, always undercutting what it's doing with a little bit of a, like, isn't this all very goofy kind of, like, wink to it. It's not exactly huh. Deadpool level of, like, meta self-commentary, but it's not not that. Like, it's still playing around with that kind of, like, just, it, it never loses itself in what it's doing. It's constantly pointing to, like, how ridiculous the whole production is. And to be fair, I did write a three-star review of this movie that I didn't find very funny. Right. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't like totally like shitting on it. I think it would be a great introduction to horror to like a child. Like if I was ten years old and saw yeah. this for the first time, it'd be my favorite movie by far. Yeah, it's it's okay. Another analogy that you just made me think of. It's like an R-rated movie that you catch on like USA at night, where it's been edited to remove all the nudity and the swearing. But because we live in a weird country, all the violence and gore is left in. Yeah. Like, that's the feeling that you get from this. And it it, it teleported me there. It transported me that there to that rhetorical space. And, and for that alone, I appreciate it. I also do agree, though, that the father is terrible. Oh. And I kind of thought that that was the joke. Because he, he does go on and on about, like, uh, maybe if you weren't such a nag, despite the fact that he is the worst character in this movie. And I thought he was going to eventually get his comeuppance, and then he didn't. And it does kind of seem to be, you know, a play on the way that movies in the 80s, especially with, like, the relationship between children and their fathers, because these movies were made by men who were doing a lot of coke and spending a lot of time away from their families in the 80s, they try to tell a story to children about how oh, your father really loves you even if he's absent-minded or not present or whatever, in a way that actually like creates a toxic uh, expectation about what a father should do. So he's like a bad father, and it seems like that's the joke, but it doesn't quite close the loop on that punchline for me. I think that's generous. Like I was reading it more like he is the audience, and he is the creative team. Like That perspective and that humor felt very like wink wink nudge nudge we're all on the same page with this asshole i think um, <laughs> i think if he didn't like fake an injury to get out of doing chores like at the as as part of his like almost introductory scene i think i would be completely in agreement with you there's something about that and his like explosion of the tough chicken in the microwave does seem to paint him as lacking in self-awareness about what a horrible person he would be to have to like cohabitate with. But maybe I am just being generous. Maybe I need to see this with a friend and uh, not stone faced on my couch. (laughs) I could probably have a much looser, uh, more forgiving experience with this movie than the first time I watched it, where I was just like, you know, not even chuckling, just kind of like looking at the practical gore stuff and admiring that. Fair enough. I owe it a rewatch. Well, that is all that I have watched, at least. So I am going to stop babbling <laughs> and stop trying to defend uh, Psycho Goreman to you and say maybe you would enjoy it on a rewatch watching it with a friend. But what have you been watching? Oh, that is a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> I took a week off work um, recently because I was 
getting kind of burnt out. Just, you know, I haven't taken any vacation time since the pandemic started. And we've been working on the floors in our house for the past six or seven weeks. And I was just hitting a wall. So I took like, you know, from a weekend to weekend span, I had 10 days off in a row and watched 18 movies over that span of time. Um, some days I was watching like four movies a day and some days I wasn't watching movies at all. I like went to a friend's house and watched, um, went to James's house and watched wrestling one night or, um, we podcasted or I think this past Sunday we watched music videos for about five hours straight with some celebratory margaritas after grouting the floor finally. Um, nice. Nice. So I'm not going to run down 18 movies right now. I think that would, uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be the official end of this podcast if I did that. <laughs> um, maybe I'll just single out one day. I uh, On my birthday, I went back to movie theaters for the first time since the pandemic started. I heard the mayor on the radio on my way to the theater talking about mask advisories again because of the Delta variant. So it felt like I was all the way back in March of last year going to see Invisible Man after a nice meal in a restaurant being like, this will be the last time for a while to do either of these things. So I I don't know if this will be like the one time I go to the theater this year. I started off that morning watching the latest Terminator film at my house. Oh, yeah. Dark Fate. Uh Uh-huh. I was into it, so. I liked it, too. I, uh, you know, I watch a Schwarzenegger movie on my birthday every year as a gift to myself. And uh, <laughs> this is the one that happened to be on Hulu, uh, so it was, like, easy to access. And I was about halfway into it, and I'm like, is he even in this very much? Like, I thought maybe he had a single-scene cameo after a while. But then one season, it. He's, he's in it, in yeah. It. <laughs> and it's a, the kind of sequel that ignores half of the canon. Like, it just dials the clock back to after Judgment Day. So it's like basically a, the third film in the series in this timeline. That's the uh, joy of the Terminator movies is you can just do that. They're all very blasphemous. Yeah, they've like written they can it just in. completely <laughs> rewrite everything. Yeah, there's so much temporal Cold War action that they're just like, yeah, this could take place at any time. We're gonna we're gonna pick and choose this where the timeline this has happened, but this has happened. Yeah, that is well. There's also yeah the possible futures like mm-hmm. many possible scenarios. Uh, so they get to like just overwrite each other. Which I loved about Genesis. I know that movie gets shadowed oh, a lot, Genesis. but I love how blasphemous oh it was. Oh my gosh, yes. I also enjoyed Genesis. <laughs> we may be the only three people in the world. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> my other super uh, Terminator fan friend uh, also enjoyed Genesis. So if you like the Terminator, you should like Genesis, honestly. like. I was so shocked that summer when everybody hated Terminator Genesis and everybody loved jurassic world i was shocked i really would have thought the opposite that's a better possible past yeah than, uh, the one we lived in <laughs> yeah it, it is sort of like the terminator movies like almost function on sandima's time or like uh where it's like oh no as long as we remember to go back and put the keys in our pockets and oh we got to go back and remind ourselves to wind our watches where it's like yeah it doesn't really matter anything can happen well in this uh version um linda hamilton's character um sarah connor prevented the apocalypse but then uh one of the terminators that was sent back to kill her kid succeeds and this is in the prologue of the film so she just kind of continued living on with her dead kid who was supposed to save the future and then terminators happen anyway in a different possible future so she like has spent decades since judgment day stamping out all these like 
Terminator variants that keep winding up in her timeline just as a regular ass citizen who's got all this training for an apocalypse that never happened in her lifetime. Yeah. Um, also, can we talk about how Margaret Hamilton is still such a babe? Or Linda Hamilton is still such a babe. I'm just She like, is so cool in this. I and love her. <laughs> that's when the movie like really won me over was when Schwarzenegger does show up and he's not the chummy, quippy Terminator from the second film. He um is the original, like OG flavor Terminator, and she hates his fucking guts. <laughs> and the two of them have a very funny comedic rapport that's just very standoffish, and she does not relent at all. Just like she wants to shoot him in the face the entire time that they're having to work together to save the planet again. And um yeah, she's just fantastic in this. She's so tough and so sharply funny. It was like watching um, Jamie Lee Curtis in that Halloween reboot recently. It's just like, why isn't she in movies all the time right Mm -hmm. now? Like, why do we have something who's so powerful as a screen presence that we just don't see? Well, you know, know, it's very frustrating. Women over 30 don't exist. So Depressing. Yep. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the movie on the whole is probably most uh, Mackenzie Davis vehicle. She's like the new badass in town. Uh, She's like a Terminator human hybrid character. Uh, She's an augmented super soldier, as she describes herself. And she, you know, is really cool too. Fun to watch her. But I really just enjoyed the rapport of Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting the shit meanly at each other. It's a pretty good movie. I I have an affection for all of the sequels except for Salvation. And uh, this one is... Even with that like affection, I think this is one of the better ones. Probably probably the best since the second one. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I don't harbor the same um, ill will towards Salvation, but... Uh, it's so boring. After that, I went to the movie theater for a double feature. I watched Escape Room 2, which I don't have much to say about other than... I do like those movies more than the Cube series. And uh, if you ever want to talk about them in contrast to Cube, I'd be interested in revisiting them again because they're both really fun. And they're all about the traps, which uh, I've already said enough about in our two Cube episodes. This one isn't as surprising or as tense as the first one, but it does have plenty of preposterous traps that uh, try to outdo the ridiculousness and the absurdity of the first one. It's not as... Surprising, but it is um, twice as ridiculous. <laughs> and, like, the scale of it gets so absurd that you just kind of have to, like, sit in awe of the impossible traps they've designed in the film. More importantly, I watched something that I would put up at the top with, I think, French Exit as, like, the two best movies I've seen so far this year. I watched the new Nicolas Cage film Pig in the theater. Pig. Pig is so good. I've been wanting to see that. Like, ever since he was here filming it, I've been wanting to see it. It is a very Portland movie, like, explicitly so. It's about the Portland, like, culinary arts scene. Yeah. Um, and a little bit about Oregon wilderness. So, yeah, you have to yeah, see it. Yeah, I was going to say, like I have to. <laughs> Both are a very big deal. Uh, here, anyway. I thought I knew what to expect from this movie, because it's basically like a John Wick scenario where Nick Cage is this wild man who lives in the woods, and he has this truffle pig that is like his only friend and his co-worker, because they find truffles together in the woods and sell them to fancy restaurants in Portland. And someone steals his pig, and then he goes on a you know trail of revenge to get his pig back. Which, hearing that that is the premise to a Nick Cage film, you have like a very specific like genre picture in your mind of the tone and like the story beats and where that's going to go. 
none of that is what happens in this film. <laughs> like, you don't get the highlight reel of him freaking out and yelling. This is like a very like subdued, hurt performance from him. He's like very so restrained. It's not the pig version of Mandy. No, it is not at all. He is caked in blood by the end of the film, like in Mandy, but he commits no acts of violence at all in the picture. Like other people beat him up a couple times, but he is a former chef who is like moved to this like truffle hunter retirement thing later in his life. And he exacts his revenge by cooking exquisite meals and criticizing other people's culinary art. And that's it. It's it's his like contributions to the food world in or in Portland that um exacts his revenge on the people who've stolen his pig. It's a wild movie, <laughs> but uh, not in the way that you expect it to be. And to be honest, I spent the last like fifteen minutes of it struggling to see the screen because I was crying and my mask was making my glasses fog up. It had these like very specific things to say about like how food triggers memory. And about how, like, a heartfelt, like, really authentic meal can, like, drum up, like, big emotions in a person. And how that can be, like, weaponized. <laughs> and uh, I had just eaten a couple, like, really nice restaurant meals with family a couple days before I saw this. Um, and like I said, I know that I'm not going to be going back to restaurants anytime soon. And it had been 16 months since I had done that in the first place. And uh, just that combination, that timing of, like, having seen that right after eating, like, a really exquisitely prepared meal just made me very emotional. And I did not expect that from a Nick Cage, John Wick knockoff. It's a good movie. Yeah, it sounds great. Now, is that the pig that makes you old? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to see an extended universe movie where those two things overlap. Um, But Alex Wolf is in both films, so I can't discount the the fact that they might be the, the same universe. The pigs in the oh my God. universe. What if it's him Which grown up from Hereditary? Hereditary. Yeah. yeah. You've never seen uh, The House of Tomorrow? Have you ever seen that? I've never heard of that. It's based on a novel that I picked up because the author's name is like Peter Bognan. And in my mind, I saw Peter Bog and I thought Peter Bogdanovich. And so I picked it up originally from like a um, library discard sale or something. And it's about like a boy who's been homeschooled and raised by like his grandparents in a um, dodecahedron house. That's not that's not enough sides. You know, the houses that are like they're like Epcot, the, the right? Where they're like domes? a geodesic domes. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. He grew up in a geodesic dome, and he when like a guardian dies he befriends a boy with like a heart problem who's like the son of like a local minister it has some ya overtones although i think it's like an adult novel but it was adapted to film and i saw it maybe within the past year but asa butterfield plays the kid that's racing the dome the titular house of tomorrow and uh wolf plays like the the kid who had had the heart transplant and they they start a band so that might be up your alley but it's a little more sentimental than what you're used to or than what i think you might like i don't know well i did uh conclude my um wonderful film day with um a teen movie from the 90s that i'd never seen before called hackers yes conversation (laughs) yeah i like i said earlier i felt nostalgic watching it Specifically, uh, you know, our next movie of the month coming up next week is going to be Sneakers. Sneakers. Which, um, Boomer chose. And it's it's a 90s computer hacking movie. Um, and it's it's very good. And I'm just watching it thinking, 
you know, this is not what I think of when I think of computer hacking. I'm picturing these like teenage perverts in like patent leather trading like slang that no one actually uses in the real world with like flashy visualizations of like life online with like lasers and uh and I was just picturing the movie Hackers uh, in my head, watching Sneakers, which I didn't know until I watched Hackers. I was like, oh, yes, this is exactly what I want out of every movie. Just, like, mystical visualizations of the internet. Uh, everyone is young and horny. Like, Angelina Jolie in the movie has, like, a wet dream about uh, this boy that she's kind of flirting with, like, cross-dressing um, in her fantasy. It's Johnny Lee Miller. Yes. Also from Elementary. Yes. And every time they go into, like, hacking mode, they just close their eyes, and there's these, like, psychedelic, quick-cut montages of just, like, pop culture ephemera trash, I guess, like, public domain imagery they could use um, to make it look like they're actually doing something instead of just typing on a keyboard. I was thrilled this entire movie. This is, like, just extremely my shit. I can't believe I hadn't seen it until this year. Yeah, this... That also seems like like you. first watch, I'm just like, oh my gosh... How did it take this long? (laughs) You and your internet movies. How did it take this long? Everything about it is perfect. Even like Lorraine Bracco's like awful line readings. (laughs) She like fundamentally doesn't understand the words that she's supposed to be saying. And I know she's a good actor. So like it just like is a bad casting choice or a bad direction note that she she was given. Um, And it's perfect. I wouldn't change a beat of it. I've been buzzing for days just thinking about that movie. It's like, oh yeah, they go to like a fake Rage Against the Machine concert for no reason in the middle of it. Or in the opening credits, they show the uh, aerial shot of New York City and then it turns into a circuit board. Oh, that is pure cinema right there. You know, I've often wondered why it is we have children in the first place. And the conclusion I've come to is... At some point in our lives, we realize things are, they're screwed up beyond repair. So we decide to start again, wipe the slate clean, start afresh. And we have children, little carbon copies we can turn to and say, you will do what I could not. You will succeed where I have failed. Because we want someone to get it right this time. But not me. Personally speaking, I can't wait to watch life tear you apart. I did have, you know, a full week to watch anything I wanted. You know, I was cramming some stuff in for the podcast and other projects of the website, but like I had time to just pick movies at random. And I've been thinking a lot about how I do that lately. Like, you know, that like feeling when you could watch anything, it's really debilitating. Like you kind of freeze and it's like too much. One of the ways I've worked on that this year is I created a watch list on Letterboxd around January of just things I'd like to see at some point. And, you know, I'll hit shuffle on that and I'll pick the first one that is available on a streaming service I already subscribed to that looks interesting at the moment. And that's how I stumbled across Stoker this year. You know, something I should have seen a long time ago. Finally got around to it because of this, like, watch list convoluted system I've set up for myself. And I didn't really know what to make of it. And because that watch list thing is so personal to me and like things I, you know, want to catch up with for my own reasons, no one else is really talking about Stoker right now. Like it's not really on the tip of anyone's tongue. 
So I got to make y'all watch it for this episode, and I get to discuss it and talk about the things that I thought were slightly off about it. This is Park Chan-wook's first English-language film. Um, this is something he made between Old Boy, which I have not seen. Nor I. And uh, Handmaiden, which I love. Yeah, same, also. I will say, having uh, rewatched Old Boy uh, recently, it does not hold up. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of a lot of hate for that, but it doesn't. It's not as good as y'all think it is. <laughs> me and me and Brandon personally, who haven't seen it, no, 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 no. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But uh, I mean, it's worth seeing, but it's not that great. It has that stink on it that Boomer talks about sometimes where, like, the worst people in the world love it. So, like, no matter how good it is, like, it's hard to, like, want to watch it. I don't necessarily have that association more than I have, like, this was really cool when I was, like, 20 sort of thing. That's its own kind of cringe. Yeah, exactly. But this is an aesthetic thing that I don't think Park Chan-wook really grew into until, in my opinion, Stoker. Uh, his editing, the very choppy, like, freeze thing he's got going. Although, there's a really, really, really good fight scene in Old Boy. And, like, anytime I've rewatched it, I've been like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Like, I wish fight scenes were all choreographed like this. So that is a highlight of the movie, is if you like action, like, martial art fight scenes, I recommend just for like one specific scene other than that you know i don't think it holds up as well and there's not a lot of action in stoker in that way it's not an action film uh the violence is more um people getting strangled by belts yeah or (laughs) stabbed with pencils my personal favorite with a rifle yeah anyway just like the editing sort of his like cut freeze style he had going on i feel like in old boy it's still very rough and then by the time you get to Stoker, his kind of like made it more subtle. And then it kind of fully disappears by the hand- time you get to The Handmaiden. And it's just themes from other movies that are worked into there. And sort of a general like appreciation for colors and symmetry that also I love so much in Stoker. I didn't notice the editing so much in this film as I noticed the camera work. He has a very overactive camera in here yes. that swoops around people. Like It like mimics the motion of someone's hand reaching around mm-hmm. in two very specific scenes that we'll get to later for sure. Yeah. Uh, he like mimics that movement a few times. But I, I, I kind of recognize what you're talking about where like the camera will freeze in a detail as if it's mm-hmm. like a trailer for the movie and not the movie itself. Yeah. That's definitely here. But the movie, you know, is... A little like buttoned up and calm. Um, it is a Southern Gothic story. Uh, it's kind of riffing on Hitchcock's film Shadow of a Doubt, right? Where like this like mysterious uncle returns to a home and kind of corrupts the teenage daughter who's living there. Um, but but since this is in 2013, the implications of that, like the incest and like the psychosexual drama of that dynamic, is way sleazier uh, than what Hitchcock did. <laughs> Which is saying something for, you know, Hitchcock at his time was here. He got away uh, with more than he should have been able to, but um, yeah, it has been like over half a century, so there's more room to play around with that stuff here. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fetishism, specifically in clothing items in the film. Uh, this uncle, who has been mysteriously away from the family for decades, has been sending, this is 
of somewhat of a spoiler, these saddle shoes to the main character over the course of her life. Every year he sends her a new pair of shoes for her to fit into. And, uh, there's like a whole ceremony she does where she like her feet get blistered from the old pair getting too small, but she like waits to get these like new shiny shoes and she slips her feet in them. And there's this like very sensual sexual fetishism to that ritual. So even though these two characters, this uncle and niece, do not have sex in the movie, there's like this like creepy fetishism to their relationship through the clothes. Uh, in his case, he wears her dead father's belt um, and uses it as a murder weapon in a way that turns her on. She watches him strangle someone with it and becomes orgasmically excited by that image. It's also worth noting that he wears uh, father's sunglasses also, or at least a pair that she initially identifies as being identical to them. And then you really start to see her warm up to him more after she goes through his things, which includes finding those sunglasses and putting them on. Like it's, it's kind of an overt metaphor of like, you know, it's like the blue key in Mulholland Drive where now she can see things through his eyes, but (laughs) it's there. And most of the movie is a three-hander. It's like the main character, India Stoker, played by Mia Wasikowska. The uncle is Matthew Good. Her mother is Nicole Kidman. And it's basically the three of them in this house just after the father figure has died and the uncle is like returning to like kind of take his place both as a sexual partner for Nicole Kidman and then as this like doting daddy figure um, with all the, you know, uncomfortable incest implications that phrase implies uh, for, for India in the house as well. And the three of them have this like very uneasy relationship where they're all kind of jealous of each other and violently angry at each other, alternating back and forth. Um, and, you know, it's all leading to a big violent come up at the end and there's like mysteries around like where the uncle has been for all of her life and like why he has such an intense attachment to her but hasn't actually interacted with her before and like the father's death the circumstances of that started come into play as part of the mystery this movie's old enough where i feel like we can spoil any of that that y'all want to get into what i found more, more striking about it than any of the narrative stuff was just the tone is so strange It's an exquisitely shot film, but it feels like a soap opera in how it's performed. All the characters almost feel like they're like reading their lines phonetically and not with any kind of like passionate inflection outside of Nicole Kidman's big speech at the end where she talks about the nature of motherhood. Like, I feel like that's the one like genuinely passionate speech where every other speech it feels like just the director is posing these victorian dolls in this like dollhouse play that he's putting on for us and i don't know if anyone else had that experience but i felt a very uncanny tone from this like almost like early twin peaks where you're like watching a soap opera but everything's just slightly off uh to the point where it feels eerie i see where you're coming from i don't know if i would have said soap opera but yeah i I definitely see where you're coming from because for me it just feels very like this is a pulpy gothic novel thrown onto the screen and just made to be very very subdued i don't think that it's southern yeah i don't think so either i think it's supposed to be like connecticut yeah it seems very uh uh new england sort of 
It was filmed in the South, and it feels like a Southern Gothic play to me. But I could the the setting might might be off. I agree that it has a very Southern Gothic like rhetorical space that it's inhabiting because it is a lot of like a little bit of Tennessee Williams, a little mm-hmm. bit of Great Gardens. Mm-hmm. It has all of those elements of just being like kind of. Uh, an urbanite and specifically like a wealthy urbanite and maybe even a socialite then being forced to inhabit this sort of like more rural area because you kind of guess that that is what is you know nicole kidman's character's motivation that's what mrs stoker's motivation is like why she kind of because she seems resentful of a lot of things you know she resents her daughter and her daughter's sort of more loving relationship with her father. She resents that India is kind of a daddy's girl. She resents uh, her late husband. You know, she finds out about the secret that he's been keeping from her after death, but even in life, we never get to see them together, obviously, because his death is what begins the film. And even in flashbacks, he only interacts with Charlie and with India, um, which is, you know, kind of part of that larger text where we actually never get to see them interact at all. But what she says about him is, you know, it wasn't always that we were so distant from each other. It wasn't always that your father and I didn't get along so well. So I think that we're left to make this sort of inference that um, Mrs. Stoker kind of resents being out of the way based on her like love for the finer things and her detestment for what are sort of the upper class rural things uh that surround her in the sense that like you know people who live in the country and who are poor unless they are taxidermists themselves they don't generally taxidermy everything that they kill yeah and we get that we we learned that about india and her father that her father like stuffed everything that she killed every animal which seems like a lot he's proud of her hunting instincts um which you know translate to human victims as the movie goes on because she has this like awakening as like a hunter um beyond just the animal stuff and that is very tied in like with what her dad taught her to be yeah i, I get where you're I, I guess i am that was a roundabout way of saying that i agree that there is a southern gothic atmosphere to it even though i think it's supposed to be new england but with southern gothic sort of grafted on top of it yeah i especially want to like note that like it, it's in the it's in the little things like the first time that India is looking down on Uncle Charlie as he's doing garden work, she's looking out through her window and there's like, a, you know, that sort of cast iron upper window safety bars kind of stuff. You know, you see it a lot in New Orleans, too, where it's like if somebody lives on the second floor and they don't have a balcony, but they can open their very large windows and there's like cast iron decorative protective barrier there. And yeah. that is like rusting and there's flaking paint on it it's a lot of like decadence and decline which is a very southern gothic like Mm -hmm. element i mean the accents and like the people did not strike me as southern at all but i also just was like thinking i was like well it's too bad like saying something is american gothic like already has this connotation of the painting because this is like it you know, you got big rural fields and guns and a distant family. The lack of an accent at all is like something that really struck me, though. Like, I, I don't feel any inflection in the performances to the point where it feels like a choice. 
yes. from the director to me. And because none of these actors are American, Nicole Kidman's Australian, and Matthew Good is British, right? It means that there's something practiced and studied about everyone's American accents in this movie, mm-hmm. right? That they have that sort of like what we ca- what can often be considered a lack of an accent, which is a sort of like this unidentifiable miasma. But it means that these actors, for them, it is a practiced, studied English that's that is non-specific that lends itself to that. I want to say real quick before we go too far from the sort of um, shuddering frame that we were talking about earlier that's part of the director's editing style. Do you guys remember the last time that we talked about something like that? Nope. Nope. <laughs> the opening with its sort of shuddering uh, imagery reminded me a lot of the end of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh, yeah. Where it also has that. And it's worth noting that Aunt Gwen in this movie is played by Jackie Weaver, who was also in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes. She is the maid at the school who is like sleeping with the guy in town and is constantly fretting about the girls. And I'll say Jackie Weaver, like as a presence in this movie, is giving like a performance I understand more so than like the main players. I think that's the other thing, though, is that everybody else around these main players sounds like a regular person. So I think it's right. also just like a clue that like these are messed up people. <laughs> yeah, something isn't right up yeah. there at the Stoker house. Yeah. There's also like, OK, there is the implication that people in town are gossiping, right? Because mm-hmm. Lucas Till's character is like, oh, I heard your your mother's been sleeping with your uncle. Who the hell would be talking about that outside of their house? Unless it's like those two gossipy, gossipy women who the housekeeper scolds early on. So we do get the implication. And, and I know that Wentworth Miller, who wrote this, which is another thing I want to talk about, has mentioned that this is not specifically a vampire story, but the use of the word Stoker is intentional or the name Stoker is intentional to kind of evoke that. And so it is a, a huge part of the original Dracula epistolary that the people in town think that something weird is going on up there. Yeah. Even if they don't know what it is. And we do get that implication from the townsfolk. And Matthew Good's character as the creepy uncle has kind of a mesmeric quality too, where like people are just like fixated on him. (laughs) Like uh, there's that scene where he's trailing the school bus and every schoolgirl is like fainting over how beautiful he is and like squealing, (laughs) which, you know, he's not like, he has like a, a handsome quality to him, but he's not like someone you completely like faint over yourself seeing him like, what is that exquisite creature the way he is in this movie? And he is driving a convertible at the time. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I also, <laughs> I also want to point out that several times throughout the movie, it is intentionally pointed out that he doesn't eat, which big <laughs> vampire vibes. You're right. He doesn't seem to be drinking the wine until he gives it to India. And he does not eat the meal that he prepares. You're right. But the script itself like, is something I don't know how much credit I want to give to it. Because I feel like often what I'm struggling with is like the movie is uncanny because it's so exquisitely shot. And I know all these performers are very talented. But the dialogue is stilted and, sh- and like eerily flat. And I can't tell like how much of that is intentional and how much of it is Park Chan-wook like just completely transforming this sort of like bland script into something 
way stranger than it actually is. I don't know. It does strike me as being intentionally uncanny. When we see, like you were saying, Jackie Weaver's character, Aunt Gwen, behave normally. Well, no, 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 no. She is a weird presence. (laughs) I I just understand her performance more than I understand the other ones. Jackie Weaver's weird as hell. (laughs) She still acts like a human. Her motivations make sense. And you understand why she makes the choices that she makes. And there is such a a sharp contrast between her and everybody who's up in that house, up on the hill. And so I think that that's intentional as like a way of, you know, Charlie is just barely, and not for very long, able to imitate a normal person. (laughs) And India herself is like, you know, she's too smart for her own good. She's too smart for her peers. She has these weird, like, sensory... uh, unusual sensory abilities or unusual sensory you know things that she cares about that make her different and you know the sort of implication is that that's something in their blood right stoker blood it's something about her genetic lineage that she's so similar to charlie down to what i thought was one of the most interesting things which is that long before she learns about what happened with charlie where charlie killed their younger brother jonathan and then did like like the snow angel motion on top of the sandbox that he buried him in. Mm-hmm. That India does that same thing on her bed. Yeah. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Long before any of that comes to light. So there is something that's innate that her father recognized in her that was similar to something that was in Charlie, and that he tried to redirect those impulses into something else and ultimately failed but you know he did try to do that for her and it kind of seems like his love for his brother who had a very difficult time being quote unquote normal might have been what attracted him to nicole kidman's character in the first place that she also was in some way not like everyone around her and that's how they ended up together in the first place so these three people who are all intimately connected to this absent father figure are all odd in their own ways, even if it's not something that's strictly innate in their quote unquote vampiric blood. And even if Charlie did fail though, to like get what he wanted out of this fucked up love triangle, he was like playing with in this house. He did succeed in awakening something in her. Right. And that is like my main hook to like, I really did like this movie. I, I know I'm sounding like kind of like cautious about that, but uh, I, I liked it a lot. And I think it's her awakening to this like violent urge in herself that like really wins me over. And I love her just misbehaving um, in this like sort of buttoned up like prim goth mm-hmm. environment. Um, I just love this like animal nature coming out of her, especially the shower masturbation scene is like one of the best like masturbation scenes in a movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, Just like her, like recalling this like recent event where like, it was almost like a a memory she immediately suppressed. And then it came back out as like a sexual urge, like right after the fact and the way the camera moves in that scene, it's like mirroring the exact movements of an earlier scene where the two of them are playing a duet on the piano and they're like the two highlights of the movie are those two scenes, like the shower scene and the piano duet. 
maybe with the exception of Nicole Kidman's big speech at the end. I was going to say, with the exception of just Nicole Kidman being gorgeous as heck. Right. <laughs> She's in her own little orbit, though. Like, between the two of them, those two scenes are, like, the real, like, vital, like, lifeblood of the movie for me. Um, and they're, they, they're mirrors of each other, and it really feels like he's, like, awakening something in her in both of those scenes. And, like, the real catharsis of it is her breaking out of that house and doing her own fucked up wild beast thing at the end um, that has nothing to do with her mother or her, her uncle. And like that's the stuff that really compels me. The journey to get there is where I'm the whole time I'm just like, this movie is so weird. And I can't like <laughs> put my finger on what's weird about it. So I definitely understand that like this violent urge was uncorked for her. But at the same time, I thought she definitely killed her uncle because he was a liar. Oh, yeah. Um, mm. I didn't think it was like a, I'm going to break free, more so than like, what? <laughs> like, you think you could come in and like woo us with your lies? Just like straight up tell us that you killed a brother. <laughs> you killed your brother. But I guess, you know, that doesn't welcome you into family's homes very much. One of the tragic things about India is that she she does seem to start to recognize that she's going down a path that her father would not have wanted for her and that she probably shouldn't go down enough that she tries to call aunt Gwen. And then of course can't because uh, uncle Charlie already killed her, but it does seem like there is a moment where she could have come back from that abyss. But once she's over the rim, she's caught in the event horizon of it and there's no escape. Yeah, I just think that he like unlocks something in her that would have been unlocked elsewhere down the line, um, no matter what. And um, by the time she decides to kill him, it's because she's like she doesn't need him anymore. Like he's kind of served his purpose, and he's also betrayed her in such a way that like is overly familiar. Like he thinks that their connection is gonna be more powerful than like this relationship we had she had with her father in the past when that is the only like genuine healthy relationship she seems to have had in her life. Yeah. So that was a major miscalculation on his part. Leave it to a guy to overestimate his own importance. Right. <laughs> the only other person she seemed to have a real genuine emotional connection to was the housekeeper who was the first person killed when he showed up. Even though she, she says to him, I've been your eyes, I've been your ears, I've been your hands in this house while you've been away. He still, like, is killing off every part of India's life that could tether her to her father's temperance of her impulses. That's some abuse shit right uh -huh. there. Just making it, like, so that you're her entire world, which is what he really wants. Yeah. So I guess it is kind of like a, a freedom thing, too. Yeah, she's, like, hitting the open road. She's not in the house anymore. And she's hunting for sport again at the end, well, which is a pleasure she has not indulged in during the course of the I movie. I mean, it's either go back and be questioned about a murder or, you know, hit the road, go to New York. <laughs> Fair enough. What's one cop? <laughs> one not very competent police officer. Yeah. Because uh, he went to that house and didn't immediately realize that something was up. It is interesting that she specifically identifies at the end, which is, of course, the beginning, like in her opening monologue, which we later learn is what's happening, you know, as kind of, not like a framing device, but we, we cut back uh, in time to before all of this, that she's wearing her father's belt and her mother's blouse. 
it's it's interesting that she identifies both of those things, but nothing that is Charlie's. I thought she said my uncle's shoes. Oh, maybe she does. And I might have missed that. My, and that's on me. No, I mean, you might be right. The or... focus on clothing in this movie is the dirtiest thing about the film. Um, <laughs> there's just something really like... But the costumes are so good. Yeah. Oh, they're so amazing. I was focused on them, too. I think I think that's the thing, too, is that it draws you into its sleazy dirtiness because you look at them and you're like, oh, I love that top. And then you're like, oh, no. And there is something about the fact that Charlie dresses very staid. He supposedly has been traveling the world and he doesn't dress like someone who's had the opportunity to go shopping in every part of Europe. He dresses like a prep school boy, which is also an interesting element. Yeah, he of it. dresses like a golf dad and not a world. Nicole traveler. Kidman is in a she is in a different movie. She is in a woman on the verge movie. Like the narrative for her is that her husband died and her extremely bright but ungrateful daughter is about to turn 18 and then suddenly her husband's hot younger brother, her late husband's hot younger brother shows up, sweeps her off her feet brings her daughter out of her shell, seems to be the perfect man, and then turns out to be a total creep, at which point she turns on her daughter and burns all of her daughter's trophies. Like, Nicole Kidman is in a completely different film. I mean, there's definitely a sort of resentment. There's a resentment of being a mom. Like, this kid came along and ruined her life. Resentment. That big stump speech she has where she finally lets all that out and, like, really cuts through all of the, like, prim manicured surfaces of the film and, like, really kind of breaks down in anger at her child. That scene feels so separate from, like, like you were saying, the sort of central drama of the story, but really does feel like a part of it because she doesn't really have any effect on anything anyone else does in any other instance. Like she has no effect on anyone except in that moment. Um, And it's such a barn burner moment. It reminded me a lot of key moments of hereditary where Tony Collette just says like, she just like slams on the table says, I am your mother. Like that kind of stuff. Like it really cuts through any kind of like, emotional remove you might have with the film it's very raw just a great performance of a monologue i mean and then at the same time like narratively this daughter is the only thing anchoring her to this extremely strange family so it's that blood that infantilization of india that's going on for so long is also she's contributing to it you know, part of it is the saddle shoes, which obviously, like, you know, are, are, are imply sort of this childlike nature to India. Even though she's 18, she's still wearing what are often considered to be like schoolgirl shoes, right? Before she gets her, her high heel and she moves on to being a woman. <laughs> <laughs> so gross. Yeah, that whole that, thing is like, oh. I'm not making that up, right? I'm, I'm, no, no, no. That's on no, purpose. That is literally. Yeah. Yep. That's what I was saying. The, the clothing itself is shamelessly fetishistic. And it's also the house itself. You know, she's sent down to this creepy basement to go to put this ice cream that was for her. You know, that, oh, you're a child. You like ice cream. Oh, you think you can't make this world yourself. Ha ha ha, silly girl. You know, and then the, the, the idea of a creepy basement is such like a children are afraid of the attic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And she's where I noticed it first is whenever she's 
uh, sitting there cracking the boiled egg. And there's one chair in that kitchen that has an extremely high back that's above her head. And it's clear immediately that that is her chair, right? That she always sits in this chair that makes her look like a child. Like she's too small for it. And that scene is shot with an extreme wide angle lens, that kind of like fish eye that like looks like a children's breakfast cereal commercial. So like everyone looks small and ridiculous in that room, especially her in that chair. It's already swallowing her. And then the first thing that Charlie says to her is, you know, do you know why that you feel like we're at an imbalance right now? She's like, because I've never heard of you. And he's like, no, it's because you're on a lower step. And it's like everything in this house has been meant to infantilize her. And then suddenly here is uh, someone opening the door to adulthood. Yeah. In the skeeziest way In this grossest, creepiest way possible. (laughs) So I think it's really interesting that after this, it just seems like she was kind of pigeonholed into the goth thing because then she goes on to crimson peak i'm also not a jermouche fan at all but i really liked her in that vampire movie oh, uh, i didn't like anything else yeah, about the movie but she's she fantastic so in it in that. <laughs> i liked that and i liked tilda swinton's outfits oh. that was my entire mm-hmm. appreciation of that mm-hmm. film <laughs> i mean that movie i know you don't appreciate it but i think in a way probably part of why you don't appreciate it it is very like too cool for school like try oh, hard God. cool Jarmusch has that Gen X thing where people just hang around. Like, mm-hmm. It's like very slacker motivated. Yeah. And uh, they get so grating on me. It's like, you have all these resources. Try to do something with them <laughs> instead of just like hanging around. Can't say the same about Park Chan-wook. He is trying to do the most with every shot and every set dressing, uh, every scenario in this film. Um, the camera is wildly active in this. The thing that really caught my eye was just all the, like, momentum of the camera, like, peering over someone's shoulder, or, like, uh, when Matthew Good removes the belt to choke Jackie Weaver with it, the camera wraps around with the belt as it's leaving his waist, or in the shower, when she, like, reaches for her crotch, it, like, peers around with her arm, like, it keeps doing this, like, momentum of that motion, and it's always unsettling every single time. I don't know. I I really appreciate everything that's going on behind the camera here. Um, And I'm very bewildered by the overall effect of it. The first time I saw this movie, I kind of had the same reaction, though. I'm going to say that actually the second time watching it through, I felt I liked it even more. So I don't know if it was just not knowing exactly what to expect going into it. Having watched it again years later, yeah, I feel like I liked it a lot more this go around. And I don't know, maybe I was just on its, uh, these people are real weird wavelengths, but I liked it more this time, so. I enjoyed it a lot both times I watched it. Um, you know, I watched it and then suggested it for an episode and then weeks later rewatched it, so I wasn't, like, vaguely recalling (laughs) what happens in it. And I had the same experience both times. I found it just very uncanny and difficult to pinpoint, but I enjoyed the experience of being completely weirded out by it both times. I think it's like a totally worthwhile movie to puzzle at and just like really beautiful the entire time. Weird vibes the whole way through. I do kind of want to do more of this in the future, just as a selfish thing. You know, I feel like we've hit this rhythm in the opening segments of the show where we like watch a lot of recent stuff and like recap that. 
I need a space to like chip away at this 3000 film impossible watch list that I've uh, constructed for myself. So I might just like randomly select a lot of our future episode topics this way, because um, I don't know. I should have caught up with this movie a long time ago. I needed some kind of like impetus to get to it. Oh, I love that idea. It's funny because this is generally where I end up taking the movies that I would want to do as movies of the month, but one person has seen. And so it, it becomes unqualified for movie of the month. So I bring them here. I, I do think that I would like to discuss more like things that are on my watch list, but every time I'm like, let's watch a movie for the first time together, it ends up being like books of blood where nobody enjoys it. <laughs> hey, that got me to read some Clive Barker for the first time. So it was a, uh, it was a worthwhile exercise, even if the, uh, the movie itself did not stack up to the stories. So I don't know, plenty of possibilities to do with this format. Um, I th- I found this to be a rousing success, <laughs> so now I want to do this again. This movie's great. Yeah, I know that this is going to end up being one of our longer episodes because we both we all had a lot to talk about, and we we both had seen a lot of things lately, and and you both had already seen this before. This was a first time watch for me, so I I know this is going to be a longer one. I know that sometimes there's been discussion of how long the these Lanyap episodes should be, but I think that this has been a very good discussion. I've given up the uh, the length. I was trying to keep these under an hour at first, and I've uh, completely relinquished control of that <laughs> just to let them be what they are. Sprawl, 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 <laughs> sprawl. <laughs> well, uh, like I said at the top, I'm going to link um, Boomer's review of The Toll, which looks awesome. I need to watch that myself. It has that thing. Like, Allie, did you ever see The Ritual from about four years ago? No. And Brandon, you did see it because you yeah, liked the review of it. It it is a, it has a lot in common with that, and I I think we both really enjoyed that. So I I, I give that one a big recommend. Uh, and I think the ritual is a Netflix film, so that's probably still hanging out there. You can watch Stoker on HBO Max right now. And I think the toll is still video on demand. Yes, yes, it is still for rent. Uh, next week on the show, we are not talking about good movies. I, I have the reins of choosing the topic on the main episode as well, and uh, I chose something purposefully awful. Oh, no. <laughs> I wanted to talk about reality TV movies, like that weird time in the early 2000s when they tried to turn reality TV stars into movie stars. Specifically, I've been wanting to watch this movie, The Real Cancun, uh, <laughs> ever since it came out in the early 2000s, knowing that it was going to be god-awful, um, and then I structured an entire podcast episode around it. So, look forward to that on the next episode of the show. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.